Good morning. We are going to begin a series of about four weeks in the book of Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you can go to Matthew and take a left, and Malachi will be right there. He's got his wing. We are certainly in a minor prophet with a title like Cole Love. You know you're in the minor prophets when, you, when they're, they're going to get in our face a bit. In fact, the minor prophets are easy to remember. They get in our face, and then they extend grace. And that's the way the minor prophets roll. And that's what we're going to see with the book of Malachi. I'm with you this week and next week. I drew the bad news side of the book of Malachi, the in-your-face side, The next guys, the grace guys, will come along later and talk about the wonder of Messiah, the messenger, who will come and rectify the problems that are real for them and very real for us today. As I prepared for this, I was amazed at the relevancy, the the wonderful aliveness of the Word of God. What is true for a group of people living in around 430 B.C. is just as alive and relevant for us today. In fact, the book of Malachi is about a message, and that's sort of the key word in this book. The the Hebrew malachi, or we would say malachi, is this idea of my messenger. As you follow this book along, look for the messenger as he'll move from Malachi in chapter 1 to most likely John the Baptist and then the Messiah in chapters 3 and 4. We'll see that this messenger has an oracle. That's the type of genre this book is. It's uh, literally the Hebrew word has the idea of a weight. Malachi is burdened down with a heavy message from God. That's the in-your-face side of the book of Malachi. But he is speaking to his people, not against them. Uh, It's a family meeting. Now, it's a tough time between God and his people, but he is calling them back out of their spiritual indifference. What we see in this last prophet of the Old Testament writing around 432, it's key that we think of to whom he is writing. He is writing to children of the exile, specifically those that have now come back. We're going to go through a little Israeli history here in a moment, but these are the people that have come back from the Babylonian exile. That's their background. That's their culture. Some have come back, their forefathers would have come back 100 years prior, uh, some just 25 years before. Uh, When Nehemiah returned 15 years prior to the writing of this book, that's who Malachi is writing to, people who most likely were born in what we would call Iraq and now have come back to Israel, and things ain't the way they used to be. Things are not the way it, it was when they were told the stories of back in the good old days. And a spiritual despondency is going to take over these individuals, and God is trying to call them out of that. The Old Testament is, in essence, the history of the people of Israel. As we see from Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob goes to Egypt, and they come out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and then the the conquest and, and the judges, and then the kings with Saul, and then David and Solomon. And as we see where the arrows split there under Solomon, because he followed after foreign wives and their gods, God split the kingdom and ten tribes went north and two went south. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians defeated the northern tribes and and assimilated them into Assyrian culture. You never hear from the northern tribes again. Benjamin and Judah in the south, in and around Jerusalem, hung out for another 140 years and endured three separate invasions from Nebuchadnezzar and 
the Babylonians, and finally they succumbed in 586, and they were taken to Babylon, to Iraq, as captives, as slaves, as prisoners. Daniel, Ezekiel, others. That's where they lived. And then we see them begin to come back in the time in which Malachi is writing. When Jerusalem fell in 586, there was the first return under Zerubbabel. And then, fi- and then next we see uh, the return uh, or the foundation of the temple begin to be laid. That's the key to the Jewish approach to God. You had to have a place to go and meet God. You had to have a temple. The temple had been destroyed, and so they begin to lay the foundation, but then fear and apathy because there was opposition, and they shrunk back. These were people that may not have seen the original temple, and when they rebuilt it, they're going to look at it and go, oh, I heard this is not as good as as the old one that we heard about, and Haggai and Zechariah will come along and, and encourage the people, and the work will resume, and then the temple will be completed as Haggai reports in 516. As we get closer to our audience, other returns. The second return under Ezra occurs in 458, and then Nehemiah brings back the third group in 444. But again, opposition sets in, and and all sorts of problems that they brought back with them from their Babylonian captivity sort of take over. Uh, The problems of the people emerge in a societal decay. And that's what's happening at the time that Malachi writes. Around 430, 420 B.C., he's going to be dealing with a group of people whose background is that we were exiles. Our grandfathers, our fathers were exiles. Many of us were born in exile. And now we're going to a land we've never even been to. This grand experience of God in Israel that goes all the way back to Abraham, which is around 2100 B.C., has now come to around 400 B.C., and we're seeing a despondency take over the people. They've lost their way. They're disillusioned with God. Imagine if our nation had been defeated and we had been taken off to places and then years and years and years later allowed to come back There's a sense of restoration, yes, but there's also a sense of confusion, a sense of not really knowing what your destiny is and who you are. Alan Ross, a professor of mine at Dow Seminary, phrased it very well, the condition of the people at the time that Malachi writes. Malachi encountered a spirit that would later be expressed in Phariseeism and Sadduceeism, a spirit of outward perfunctory service with no inward repentance or devotion. There was widespread skepticism and resignation. The people complained that the earlier prophetic promises had not been fulfilled and they were impatient for God to judge their enemies, especially the Gentiles. And so Malachi had serious issues to address, but he was exactly the right man for the job. So I needed to take you back so that we could have some sense of what the original audience was sensing, what was going on with them will be in strong parallel to what can happen in our lives as well. As we begin to have an estrangement with God, a a disappointment with Him, perhaps, over the lack of fulfilled promises, Malachi deals with this subject of spiritual indifference, an apathy, a malaise. This is a group of people to whom the Ten Commandments were first given. They've been there and done that, and they're starting to recognize that God is slipping away from them. 
and they want to know, can I ever come back? In fact, we'll see them, as this book is structured, so deeply entrenched in their position that Malachi has to get in their face a little to draw them out of their spiritual indifference. So Malachi will record Yahweh's burden for Israel and his desire to prompt those returning from exile to repentance from their spiritual indifference and to renew their hope in the promises to come through Messiah, God's final messenger. This is the last book of the Old Testament, and it contains in a short four-chapter volume all the things that you'll see in the Old Testament, the great hope in God, the disappointment that at times people sense in God, and God renewing us back to hope in Him again. It's a beautiful, shortened version of God's message to the people. But it's a book of warning, and we have some warnings to follow after ourselves. Just like we might see signs like a bridge out or uh, rocks falling out of mountains on us or uh, smokers not uh, to, to be warned against smoking, we have a warning also. And that warning is going to be that how dare we be spiritually indifferent to a message warning us against spiritual indifference. Let's guard against that, okay? Let's don't respond with spiritual indifference to a message warning against spiritual indifference. So this is a message to all of us who at times sense God slipping away from us. This is a message to all of us who at times have felt him to be very far away and not the central core of our life. This is a message to God's people because this is a reality of what happens to God's people. So sort of hang with us, get through the in-your-face portion this week and next, and we'll see the beauty of this book turn as the, as the chapters unfold. It's a very unique book structurally. I've never, there's not another book in the Old Testament that I know of like this. It follows a structure of seven questions that God will say this is what Israel is thinking. So what he wants us to think is this is how Israel is questioning God. And collectively, these questions reveal the depth of the nation's spiritual indifference. And you can follow them throughout these four chapters. So these are the questions on the hearts of the people that are despondent with God, that are indifferent to him, that are blowing him off because they sense he is far away and estranged and can bring nothing to us. He has let us down, and we are disappointed with him. And notice the areas that they're going to cover. We're going to cover the first question, which I think is the foundation, foundational questions. All the other ones are connected, sort of like a domino being tipped over and all the other ones fall, or a foundation of a pyramid. The question that we're going to cover is the idea of how have you loved us? That, that's the question they will pose in our section today in verses 1 through 5. And there's a certain acidity in these questions. They're incredulous. Uh, There's a sarcasm uh, that's most likely a part of their question. How have you loved us? Is their their attitude. How How have we despised you, God? For what reason were our sacrifices unacceptable to you? Where is the God of justice? How shall we return to you? How have we robbed you, God? Look at the ideas behind 
these questions. Finally, how have we spoken against you? That's pretty revealing. If these are questions that we have for God, uh, there's, some, there's some spiritual work that needs to be done. And that's the purpose of the book of Malachi, to sort of get in our face just a little, shake us out of the spiritual doldrums, and to move us back to repentance and to return to him. But if this is indicative, one or all of these questions at times in our lives, Malachi is the Brussels sprouts that God wants us to eat today, okay? It's a tough little book. It's a tough message, but it deals with the reality of life with God. They broach these subjects. They question God's love. They're going to question God's name and and honoring his name. They're going to question the sacrificial system and and why should we do it the way God asks us to. They're going to question God's justice and, and, and display a hesitancy to return to him. They may know of him, certainly. They are saved by him, if you will, but there's a hesitancy that they're not trusting. They don't want to give him their money, and they display an arrogance toward the Lord that is really quite stark as this book will unfold. And so what we're going to see as the chapter unfolds, if you want to go to Malachi chapter 1, let's take a look at this little document and see how Malachi wastes no time sort of laying out his subject. The oracle, or that weight, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now we're going to take this, these next few verses apart a bit, but look for the structure, look for the flow of the argument that's going to be key to how God is revealing himself in this book. It's a series of questions and then answers. And so what we see in Malachi chapter 1, God says in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And God will answer, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. And he goes on to speak further of Esau, who is also called Edom. Though Edom may say, we have been beaten down, we will return and build up the ruins, the Lord of hosts will say, they may build but I will tear them down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Let's let's take it apart just a moment. Okay, let's follow like a script what's going on here. What we're going to see is that this is going to unfold through an order, and we're going to see that God, and this is very important, because he will be consistent from Genesis 3 to the end of the book of uh, Revelation, consistently stating his love for his people. It starts off by saying, God to Israel, I love you. Their response, how have you loved us? And he's going to respond to that question by restating, I have loved Jacob, who is the same guy as Israel, by the way, And then negatively, he's going to state, not only have I loved Jacob, I have hated Esau. Now, we hear those words, love and hate, and immediately all sorts of downloads start to occur in our head, because to us, those are terms of emotion. And when you love something, you have a nice, warm feeling toward it. 
you feel uh, very special toward them. And when you hate something, anger and despising comes up, and you want to hurt them. That's not at all what these biblical words mean, as we'll see from the Old Testament, as well as Paul's commentary in Romans chapter 9. We got to take a look at these words just for a moment to make sure we understand what God is saying when he says, Israel, I love you and I hate Esau, the two brothers that came from Rebekah and Isaac. Ahav, the Hebrew word, often has this idea of choice. Thus, I have chosen Jacob or Israel, and the word for hate, sane, has this idea of not chosen, or this idea, this concept, I have not chosen Esau. So now it's starting to make a little bit more sense. God in his sovereignty and his desire to bless the nations and to make his name famous chose Jacob to be the channel through whom that message would get out, and he did not choose Esau, two brothers. I chose to wear this shirt today, and the other 15 or so in my closet, I hated. Okay? Now, I'm not really angry at the other shirts in my closet. I just chose not to wear them. So if we can kind of readjust our thinking and see that really love and hate is the idea to choose and not choose, this will make a lot more sense to us, I think. Let's take a look at this love-hate usage in the Old Testament so we can see God's choice of Israel is really demonstrated in his love for them. Synonymous terms. Notice in Deuteronomy 4.37, because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them, and he personally brought them from Egypt by his great power. Love and choice being used interchangeably. Deuteronomy 7, you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to his forefathers. Love and choice being used synonymously. And finally in Deuteronomy 10, yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them even above all peoples, as it is to this day. This concept of love is very, it's quite revealing, by the way. It's the idea of setting one's affection upon another, not based on anything, not based on what he or she can do for me, but because I choose to do it. That's why you see all kind of arranged marriages, by the way, in the Bible. And I'm not advocating arranged marriages, but it can work if one has the volition, the will, the mindset, simply to love because I choose to. And this sort of gets in our face a bit about what our culture teaches us about love. It's often very selfish. It's very self-centered. How I feel when I'm with you, how you make me feel, the things I can do because of you as opposed to what can I do for you because I choose to love you. That's the essence of the Greek word agape or agapao, the idea of unconditional love. It's based on nothing other than the choice of the lover. makes a little bit more sense what God is doing when he says, Jacob, I love, Esau, I hate it. Elsewhere, the Bible does this all the time. We're to hate evil and love the Lord. 
in, in Psalm 119. Hate double-mindedness. Love the law. We're to hate falsehood and love the law. Hate naivete or simplicity and love knowledge. He's not saying be angry at naivete. He's not saying set up a, a vendetta against falsehood. He's saying don't choose falsehood. Don't choose simplicity. Don't choose double-mindedness. Rather, choose to follow the law. Choose the knowledge of God. Choice, love, and hate is the idea. So what we see as this unfolds ultimately in Romans chapter 9 is probably the best explanation of this whole conundrum. Paul, in his famous chapter, Romans 9, takes a look at the real-life story of Rebekah and Isaac, who have two kids, Jacob and Esau. And we're going to see why God chose one as opposed to the other. It was to demonstrate God and his sovereign ability to choose and nothing more. Notice what he says. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, just camp out there for a moment. Before they were born, he's going to make his choice. They had not done anything good or bad, but so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works of the kids, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Exact opposite of Hebrew culture. The oldest son was to receive the double portion. That was Esau. He should have got the big deal. Should have been the head guy. He was born just a few minutes before his younger brother. And so we see the, the, the flipping where Jacob is elevated. Why? Because God said so. Because God chose to do it that way. Ephesians 1 will say it was according to his kind intention. It's what he wanted to do. And at times I think when we're, when we're feeling estranged from God a bit, we need to be reminded that there is God and his domain and us and ours, and we need to let him be him while we try to relate to him. God is a grand chooser and has the right to make such switches. The older will serve the younger, just as it's written, as he quotes here from Malachi and previous from Genesis, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's simply, I chose Jacob, I did not choose Esau, okay? Then that will make a little bit more sense when we see Israel's job description. This is the vision that was cast for them. This is what they were chosen for, to be a holy nation, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession, sons of the living God from Hosea 1, a light unto the nations. They were the channel that was chosen to be the blessing to the world. It is through them, the fewest of the people. Did you notice that in the Deuteronomy passage? You see, choosing is not like the NFL draft. He doesn't look and figure out what's the best player that I can have on my team to make my team better. God will often do the opposite. He'll say that the younger, that will be, he will be the one now served. He will, he will say, uh, the fewest will now be my choice. Remember when he's dealing with Gideon? He says, Gideon, you still got too many guys. Let's get rid of, rid of those so you will know all will know that it was God and his choice that mattered. And that's what's happening in the nation of Israel. They are blessed to be the recipient of his choice. And that's the background of this nation that now when we come to Malachi is questioning 
God's love, who again says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And the answer, of course, is going to be, I chose you. I picked you of all the nations. I set my love upon you. That is your background. That is your destiny. That is your identity, one loved by God in this special way. And they slipped away from that. As Peter would say, they have forgotten their purification. They mentally know it, but they're not making it a regular part of their life. How can the people of God get to this place? How can Israel have gotten to that place at the time that Malachi writes? How can we from time to time also slip into this despondency, this spiritual indifference? We are not immune from it, I promise you. The number one thing when I do counseling is with middle-aged men. And they just tell me time and time again, I just can't sense him anymore. It's like he's slipping away from me. I can't feel him. I'm growing tired of my relationship with God, especially men who have had a relationship with the Lord maybe since they were little boys. Maybe like the Israelites, they have that been there, done that attitude. And they're failing like all the professional athletes and all the sports they're not going back to spring training, and they're not doing their basic spiritual P's and Q's. We're going to see how this can work out in the life of Israel and the life of us today, because that's the aliveness of God's Word. The people 2,400 years ago struggling with spiritual despondency, spiritual indifference, we're no different. We're not immune. So what we're going to see is people will doubt God's love when our expectations are unfulfilled. I want you to think about in your life all the times that an expectation has been unfulfilled, whether it's family, spouses, kids, in-laws, lack of spouse, lack of kids, money, career, friends, too many or not enough, all the things that might come into our lives that can cause us to be, to sense an unfulfillment. And how we might respond to that. That's what's going on in Malachi. They are responding in a way in which they're pushing God away and questioning his goodness. Questioning his love for them. That's why this first question of all seven in the book of Malachi is the most important. Because if your love for God slips away, starts to erode, all the other ones will come afterwards. One of my favorite authors on subjects like this is, uh, he's been around a while, but just because it's an older book doesn't mean it's, good, it's not good, Philip Yancey and his book, Disappointment with God. I highly recommend you, to, you read it because Yancey is one of those authors who pushes the envelope a bit. He can read between the lines, but he tells it like it is. He talks about his own life of spiritual indifference at times. But one of the things that's wonderful about this book, Disappointment with God, is he always takes us back to the proper perspective that we are to have with God. That God reserves the right to allow things to come into our life, and he's actually asking us, how are you going to react? Like a spiritual pop quiz. What is your perspective in times of trial? We're getting a look at the negative side of things today. 
The one on the far extreme will say, how has God loved me? He doesn't love me. He doesn't care for me. I can't feel him. I can't sit to him. I don't even think he's there. God deals with such a symptom and calls us back to repentance by reminding us of the most basic relationship between God and us. He loves us. The same answer that's going on in the third grade Sunday school right now is good enough for this room also. God loves us. And that's how he begins to melt the ice of cold love, reminding us of his love. Notice what Yancey says. We tend to think life should be fair because God is fair. But God is not life. And if I confuse God with the physical reality of life by expecting constant good health, for example, then I set myself up for crashing disappointment. If my goal is to get to the other side of this table and I am blocked in some way, I'm going to respond in one of four ways or all of these in combination. And you can remember it by the acronym DRAG, D-R-A-G. I'm going to respond with depression. Oh, I'm just a terrible person. I can't get around this table. I'm going to respond with resentment. I'm going to be mad at God or this thing that's blocking me. I'm going to respond with anger at this thing or God for allowing this thing to be in my way. Or I'm going to respond with guilt. If I was just stronger, if I was just smarter, I could figure my way around it. When God's people doubt his love, our expectations are unfulfilled. Let's don't be those that are a drag. Let's return to the Lord and the most basic relationship that we have with him is his love for us and our counting on that love. Yancey says, I rejected the church for a time because I found so little grace there. I returned because I found grace nowhere else. Powerful words. The people of God, as we've seen throughout the Word of God, especially today in Malachi, are not perfect people. We are not perfect people. But let us be people who do exhibit and exude the grace of God toward others. It is found only in places like this. It is not found on the street. It is not found in the world. And it, it can be the key characteristic that distinguishes us of all the peoples on the earth, depository of God's love so that we can be gracious toward others. That's our calling. God's people doubt his love when we overlook our responsibility. There's a wonderful section of Scripture right before the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 18 and 19, he's going to give this long litany of things that he wants Israel to do. And Israel sort of looks at the job description and says, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're in. Sign me up. I'm with you, God. One of the things I love most about the Bible is its honesty. It shows their their, their high points and many of their low points. It's a a cycle of, of loving God and then slipping away and returning to God and then slipping away. And at times of spiritual indifference, which is where we are today in our in our study in Malachi, how God tries to bring us out of that trough by causing us to be mindful of what it is that we're responsible for, that what it was that we said we would do. Nehemiah 10, just a few years prior to Malachi, the promises were made again. We'll clean up our marriages. We'll observe the Sabbath. We'll worship properly. Those were the three main problems that existed in Nehemiah. Three chapters later, the promises were broken, right? 
Just imagine God as a daddy, you as a daddy, you as a mama, what that's like when your kids, three minutes after saying they'll obey, disobey. It's life with God. It's life. And the Scripture deals with such despondency. It deals with such reality. In Malachi, two of those three promises are being dealt with, and they will be broken. The marriage and worship. And so when we overlook our responsibilities, we fail to remember this key principle that we can't see God clearly when we don't look at ourselves honestly. In James chapter 1, he uses a metaphor that the Bible is like a mirror, and it is intended to reflect reality. But maybe like you, as I get a little older, I tend to look at mirrors less and less because I'm not exactly pleased with what I'm seeing every time I look at that mirror. And perhaps that can happen with this spiritual indifference, this spiritual despondency, sort of the ache and the guilt at times that we might feel when we see ourselves for real in the mirror of the Word of God. And we take a look at it and we go, oh man, what is that? I've seen that blemish. I'm not even going to touch that. I don't even know what that is. The mirror of God's Word tells us the truth about our symptom, but also our physician, also our healer. And the Word of God reminds us, look at ourselves honestly, and then we can begin to take steps back to renewal. God's people doubt His love when we overlook the evidence of His love. Put your lawyer hats on for a moment. The evidence of God's love is all around us. Toward Israel, it was God's graciousness extended in His unmerited choice of them, in his unending love for Israel. And for us, it's seen most beautifully for me in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. That is the essence of the Christian life. Estranged individuals from God, separated from God, can be called into God's person into his community, into his household of faith by the simple fact that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, and that by believing in that, one might be saved. One might enjoy the grace of God forever in their life. For us, that is an evidence that is overwhelming. How about his protection and his preservation of us? Paul, in his very famous Romans 8 writes these words, for I am convinced, count them with me, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. I had 10. He writes like a lawyer. Man. It's everything you can think of he's going to throw in there. All to the point, all of those things are unable to separate us from God's love. This is God 101, y'all. I love you. Love me back, is what he's saying. Beautiful case study as we close with the church at Ephesus, a church that struggled with love, that went through the whole gamut of loving God. Paul plants the church in, in 51 or 52 AD. He then teaches there for almost three years, and then he leaves. He calls the Ephesian elders to a city called Miletus in Acts chapter 20. He's on his way back to Jerusalem to deliver money for the poor there in Jerusalem. And he brings the elders of the church, just he and the elders, 
And he gives this very long passage from verse 17 through verse 38 in Acts 20, and I highly recommend this section. But the heart of it is this for our purposes. From among your own selves, guys, from among the elders, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw the disciples away after them. To draw away the disciples after them. From the elders, perversity will happen. It's a warning because it's possible. And he writes the book of Ephesians. It's all about unity because there was disunity. And then the real problem we see in 1 Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of the Ephesian church. He writes what we know as 1 Timothy to deal with the false teaching that has come into that church brought by who? Those elders, some of those elders that we just saw in Acts 20. And notice what he says. I want you to keep faith and have a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, that they may be taught not to blaspheme. I take it that Hymenaeus and Alexander were two guys standing there with Paul in Miletus in Acts 20 and had now taken on false teaching and had caused such unity or disunity in the church that it prompted Paul to write 1 Timothy. 30 years later, John in Revelation chapter 2, he's going to address seven churches. Very first one he addresses is the church at Ephesus. And he says, and to the church at Ephesus write, you have left your first love. Same problem we see in Malachi, 430 B.C. We see 500 years later in 96 A.D., with a church that has left its first love. A church that Paul planted, y'all, didn't end well. Okay, Why? Because it had human beings in it. And we have responsibility to love God correctly and to receive his love or an erosion can kick in. A spiritual indifference can take over. And that could be your epitaph. Let that not be said of us. Now, in fairness to God, right after this verse, he says, do the deeds you did at first. Return to the things of God Repent and draw near to me. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us, God? And to the church at Ephesus write, you have left your first love. Powerful parallels between these two books. And real life love stories, bad love stories, but nonetheless love stories seen in the Bible. Let me give you three things to think about as we close. Remember, love is a choice. Redefine that word in your mind and in your actions, that to love is to choose to do something. Emotions can be a part of it, but not necessarily. Let the choice, the will, the volition lead, and let the feelings follow. Okay? So if love is a choice, and you're, and you're suffering a bit with spiritual indifference, spiritual malaise, spiritual blah, just choose to love God. Just choose to love Him. Don't wait for the feeling to do it. Just choose to love him. Reprioritize him to position number one. Choose to obey. Even if you've got to fake it till you make it, do it. Because he is pleased with the obedience, the heart will follow later. We're taught in our culture, if I'm not feeling it, it's not real. Biblically, that's not correct. Set your will to love God, set your will to choose to obey Him. Return to the basics of loving God, loving your neighbor. Choosing God is loving God. So whether you're a group of 
Jews that have come back from the exile 2,400 years ago or folks sitting in College Station in the summer of 2013, God speaks to us. We are not immune from the reality of spiritual indifference. This is how to guard against it. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we do have to think about these things this morning. And we do ask you, Lord, as we, as we sung earlier and as we prayed earlier, will you meet us where we are? Will you cause us to recognize our situation in an honest and open way? And at the heart of the recognition of that situation, remind us, God, that you love us. Let us start there. That you love us, you have chosen us, and that gives us a great sense of purpose, a great sense of identity, and a great sense of responsibility. Indeed, to whom much is given, much is required. And Father, if we have indeed let you down and and have eroded away from you, revive us back, Lord. Just bring us back to you, Lord. We ask you to give us opportunities to simply choose you and simply choose to love you. As the song said, my heart will say, no other name, Jesus. The final messenger of the book of Malachi, the Messiah. He is our hope. He is our call. We ask him now to revive us again. Help us choose him and choose to obey him, we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all next week. The bad news will continue, so if the crowd's half, I understand, but come on back.